Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I am Tracy Hotchner, your dog's best friend and your kitty cat's best friend, bringing you authors and experts every week to enhance your appreciation of the pets who share your lives. Please give a listen to all my new Pet Talk radio shows on the Radio Pet Lady Network, co-hosted by top experts at RadioPetLady.com. Dog Talk is a production of Eight Paws LLC, which is solely responsible for its content and is brought to you with the generous support of Platinum Performance Supplements, Precious Cat Litter, Nordic Naturals Omega-3 Fish Oils, Feel Away and Adaptil, and Waruva Pet Foods. Waruva is a privately owned company named after the owner's cats, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. They are dedicated to the highest quality ingredients in their cans and pouches. People could even eat it because it's all made in a human food facility, so everything in there is good enough for us to eat. All the flavors of Waruva, Cats in the Kitchen, and their more economical BFF, Best Feline Friend brands, are great for finicky cats, especially those you're trying to transition away from dry kibble. I have such a fun show for you. Hope everyone had a great July 4th or is still having it. I have Stephen Latham, who's the producer, director, creator of Shelter Me. Some of you might have seen it on PBS. Wonderful series backed by the Halo Pet Food Company. Just wonderful, heartwarming stories. Mia Cobb from Australia, who's a very famous canine research scientist, such a fun gal. She's going to talk to us about the work she's doing with working dogs in Australia. And the famous Jim Rollins, the Kill Switch author. We've had him on before, the wonderful service dog, the military working dog, a thriller writer, just cool book. You're going to love it on the beach. James Rollins will be with us later. I'm going to jump right in and say hi to Stephen Latham. Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2, Stephen. Wonderful to have you here. Thanks, Tracy. I'm excited to be here. Well, the Shelter Me series, lots of people have seen it because lots of people get PBS and we all love public radio and public television. And I first learned about the Shelter Me series through Halo because I work with the company. I feed the food. But what really jumped out at me was one of your segments, which you're the producer, director, and creator of, has an artist who's a poet and a performance artist, I guess one could call him, Steve Connell, who wrote and performed a poem, which I will, along with the podcast of this show, be sure to have a link so people can experience it. How did you find this amazing gentleman? Well, so I live in Los Angeles, and I'm around a lot of artists. And I had a I had a concept for Shelter Me, which was, you know, how do we communicate how incredible these animals are at the shelter, and how do we really let people know that the only way that this world changes is to get people to go to the shelter and help the shelter, help the animals. And I wanted to find a poet. I had done work before with some of my films where I've used spoken word pieces, and I looked for a particular person who could communicate my vision. And I was introduced uh, to Steve Connell by a, a mutual friend. I took him to the shelter with me, and I said, you know, this is what I'm trying to accomplish. I want to make sure you understand you feel it as well. He had pets. He had shelter pets his whole life. And he went away for a couple of weeks and wrote this piece and performed it wow. immediately. And, uh, and it's in the film. That's amazing because what's interesting is in a lot of your segments, which which deal with both wonderful stories of people who've adopted pets and their individual stories as they're followed, but also other work that's done with shelter pets, like in prisons and children going in with students, with photographers to learn how to take better photographs of pets. 
there's often one sees the shelters as many of us have actually experienced them as pretty kind of depressing, scary looking places, very cement, kind of often wet cement because it's been washed down and kind of maybe slightly rusty, chain linky looking. But in his performed poem, it's in this really cool space. It's empty the way you filmed it, which is very exotic. But it's beautiful tile work, this wonderful kind of retro tile work. Where was that shelter? So that is the perception of shelters, you know, being, you know, concrete and steel. And we we found an an empty shelter in Riverside County, California. Um, So there's there's a trend to try to build shelters more inviting with more color. Um, This happened to be a shelter that just hadn't opened yet. And I wanted an empty shelter to really be the metaphor for wouldn't it be amazing if we just, if we didn't need these places, if we didn't need to kind of keep these animals warehoused and we could really think of them as, you know, if there are animals in the shelter, it's really a place that you could come and come with smiles and not, not be scared and not be depressed about it. And fall in love. I mean, it's the, the poem that he wrote and a spoken word piece really does feel like it could be in a museum or on a stage somewhere it's it's pretty damn moving. I mean, most everyone listening has at some point in their lives, if they didn't adopt a pet, they've known them. You know, someone else adopted them. Southampton Shelter is the official shelter of the show. And they're chock-a-block with dogs and cats that come and, and go and come and go. And it's it's not a revolving door because they don't come back. They do stay with the people. But there's always more where they came from. And I've never really seen anybody create a story, create an emotional artistic event that celebrates the love and the magic that happens. And it's very universal. I mean, anyone can see that and just get all choked up, teared up. How did you, as a director, producer, get hooked up with Halo? I mean, did they know your work and say, hi, Stephen, could you do some great public television pieces on shelter pets. That seems not logical, but how did it happen? It's, it's a wonderful synergy of a pet food company that's all about giving to shelters and celebrating rescue. But how did you find each other? So I approached them whenever I put together a project um, and I've been working with PBS for you know over 15 years. Oh, I see. Um, okay. I bring in, you know, sponsors and I, and I don't just look for a company that's going to put up money. What I do is I look for a company that is really in line with, with my thinking, with what I'm trying to accomplish with the project. And exactly what you just said, you know, Halo is co-owned by Ellen DeGeneres. So you have this huge commitment for animal welfare, but they really walk the walk. The majority of their marketing budget is spent on giving this high quality food directly to the shelters, which need it desperately. So I love their message. I love what they stood for. So I actually approached the CEO and I uh, told them what the project was about. And right from the start, we were on the same page and it's, it's been an awesome relationship. Pretty unusual in this sort of cynical dog-eat-dog, excuse the expression, but money-driven world that we all live in, whether we're artistic or in commerce, that there be this kind of purity of intention, both you as a filmmaker and them as a pet food company to say, yeah, yeah, all good, good that I can, you know, make films and make a buck on them or make a living and thrilled to be at PBS, but there has to be some... Uh, unity of purpose. And that's really unusual. It's, you know, I think it's so easy to be cynical and think, yeah, right. That's just a marketing ploy. But really there are these companies and there are these people, you're, they're a company, you're a person who does it because they really believe in it. And I think that the Shelter Me series, it comes across that way. You've got some pretty highfalutin celebrities to do the, how do you do at the beginning? 
I mean, you have Catherine Hagel on one, Edie Falco on another, and the marvelous Jane Lynch on another. I would guess that these celebrities did it in a PSA kind of way because they really loved what you were doing and loved the message, and they all have adopted pets. I guess that's right, yes? Well, that's what's so cool about this project. Uh, all, all the people that have been attracted to it um, are because they love our message. You know, what we do is we, we tell positive stories. Uh, we, we think that change comes from inspiration and not desperation. So we really want, just like the poet, you know, he, he makes the, the analogy that shelters are a place of hello and not a place of goodbye. Yes, yes. So the, so the whole idea here is, you know, we want to activate communities to embrace their local shelter. So all of the celebrities that have been involved with the project the cool part is they've all adopted from the shelter. So yes. they're not just yes. celebrities that pop their name on it and say, oh, okay, this is a good cause. These are people who absolutely love their shelter pet, and they want the world to know that the best pets are at the shelter. That's true, and Jane Lynch does a lot of whatever she does in a nonprofit show up and shake hands kind of way in Los Angeles. Um, she is the the client of one of my co-hosts on Holistic Vets, Dr. Patrick Mahaney, and she shows up. And, you know, she has not much time because anyone who's a working actress doesn't and a lot of people wanting a piece of her time. And she shows up for anything that's related to, you know, pets, particularly shelter pets. And if I'm not wrong, Catherine Hagel even started her own small rescue, I believe, in honor of her brother. When I was once on the Santa Monica Beach as a Petco spokesperson celebrating natural foods and stuff, there was a little separate booth for what I think was her own rescue. I don't know if that continued, but certainly she put a lot of energy into the concept of rescuing as a good cause. She does. She and her mother have a, a foundation, and it's a rescue. Um, they they provide resources to the shelters. They're incredibly committed, and are, are re- they really are making a big difference in showing uh, what happens when you can use you know your your fame and your your money to yes. really help these animals. And they they really are walking the walk. And I get just so many of us that have bought dogs at various times in our life. My message always is to people, you got to buy from a breeder that you know, that you meet, that you shake hands, and you either go to your local shelter and give time, volunteer, give money, or your next dog or cat, you adopt. So you have a, a nice balance. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. You know, I don't think that that leaves room for people to feel comfortable. They have to know that there's room for lots of different pets in their world and as many of them as you can give a new home to the better off you are what do you have under your own roof with in terms of four legs <laughs> so i i have a full a full house I'm, I'm i'm one dog away from being featured on the tv show hoarders <laughs> <laughs> i uh i have three of my uh, own dogs all from the shelter i'm, I'm fostering a fourth oh and my God. i i'm also um i i work with other trainers and um and other fosters where I, um, I will actually sponsor a pet. So when a dog's time is up at the shelter, I'll actually pull them and no I've got dogs in different homes, but we work with them and we find great homes for them. So I'm, I, I never ask anybody to do anything that I don't do. <laughs> so. and, I, and you'd be very hard pressed to find people who would do all that you're doing because fostering a dog when you already have resident dogs is a huge amount of management of, of energy and personalities and resources. And oh my God, my hat's off to you. It was PBS a hard sell on this series or were they like they already knew you as an excellent director producer and said, you know, if you think it'll work, it'll work. I mean, was there open arms or kind of resistance? 
No, really open arms. I mean, I, I've worked with them. Uh, my first project was a series I did with Barbara Streisand called The Living Century, which was a biography series about people over 100 years old. So oh, really my God. How cool are you? I missed that. That sounds so great. So, so I've, I've really done a lot of programming. I produce and direct for Nova, the science series, and PBS. Oh, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a trusted producer-director with them. So when I brought them this project and, and told them, you know, what it was going to be about and the stories about, you know, our war veterans with PTSD being yes. paired up with shelter yes. pets or, you know, these really hyperactive dogs at the shelter that are being trained for search and rescue and being paired up with first responders. Uh, PBS said yes before I finished my sentence. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm well aware of that, that they would have because the work is fantastic. And even though the stories all sound good on paper, without the creative kind of force that knows how to make those stories unique and fresh and zip along, um, it's pointless. It just becomes maybe depressing or maybe a little too saccharine. And I think you have a great balance, a wonderful balance. And I think they're great stories. And to anyone that, how do, how do people look at these if it's now, you know, the middle of July and many of these have already aired, how do people look at Shelter Me on, on PBS? Do they go to the PBS website? Well, so the best way is, the, is going to our website, shelterme.tv, and we list the entire oh, cool. PBS broadcast schedule because PBS repeats them throughout the year, which is awesome. Um, and, and the DVDs and the streaming of the films are also available. All the information is at shelterme.tv. Shelterme.tv, fantastic. And with the broadcast, the podcast of this broadcast, um, I'm going to have a link to, to the wonderful poem, Steve Connell's wonderful poem that, that sets the tone for all of this and really gives everybody a reminder of why, why pets are such a huge, happy part of our lives and why the shelter has so much happiness waiting for us. You've done a super job, Stephen. Anything else you do with animals, you know where to come and knock on my door because we'd love to know about it. Although I must say centigenarians is a pretty cool topic too. We, we, I love what you're doing and I love the fact that it's out of your own personal passion as well. It's just, it's great to know there's so many wonderful minded people out there being creative and being artists and at the same time doing so much good with, with their power. So hats off to you. Well, and thank you for caring about the animals. It means a lot. Of course, of course. Take care. Enjoy the rest of your day. And we'll be looking out on ShelterMe.tv. Take care. Great. Thanks, Tracy. Take care. We'll be right back after this quick word with Mia Cobb and find out what she's doing with service dogs in Australia. This show has been supported by Platinum Performance since its first broadcast. Platinum Performance makes comprehensive nutritional supplements which contain nutrients designed to improve overall health at a cellular level especially joint health and the arthritis that comes with aging. Platinum Performance makes supplements for dogs, cats, horses, and people, too. We are also supported by the pheromone products Feel Away for Cats and Adaptal for Dogs. Pheromones are chemical communicators that are a natural signal of comfort in your pet's brain. Feel Away and Adaptal plug-in diffusers are stress relievers that can help with anxiety or behavior issues and also help adopted pets make the adjustment to their new homes. Veterinarians carry feel-away, which can reduce problems in a multi-cat household, and they have adaptil collars, which can help dogs with anxiety from separation, thunderstorms, or travel. I am back with Mia Cobb, who I'm dying to meet. She's here from Australia on business. She was a big part of the Sparks Conference that Julie Heck talked about um, several weeks ago, the Society for the Promotion of Applied Research in Canine Science. It's a mouthful. But it's clearly what Mia Cobb has dedicated 
her life to and is now getting a doctorate in the welfare enrichment and work performance of kenneled working dogs as part of the Anthrozoology Research Group in Australia. Wow, you are so cool, Mia. It's wonderful to have you on Dog Talk. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's so wonderful that you came to America. It's quite a hike and a half, right, to, to be part of this illustrious group of canine researchers and scientists. When, I, when Julie first mentioned you as her pen pal, it was obviously email pen pal, because together you have this very cool website, Do You Believe in Dog, right? That's right. Yeah, that's why right. we've been working or uh, I guess writing to each other as pen pals on the blog for the last few years. Um, We first met at another canine uh, science conference called the Canine Science Forum, and that was last held in Barcelona in 2012. Uh, It will be held again in mid-July in Lincoln in the UK this year. Um, But, yeah, we met very briefly in Barcelona, and we spoke to each other for probably just about five minutes. And after that, we decided to keep in touch, and then we, we decided we'd do that through a blog. So we write to each other about various elements of canine science, it might be to do with welfare of dogs or it might be to do with training techniques. And occasionally we have guest blogs from other scientists that work in our field. And I guess what's really extraordinary to realize is how rich and deep your field is. I don't think most of us are aware. We might hear of Alexander Horowitz because she writes a best-selling book and then Julie works with her. But really the idea that canine science and research is a very serious pursuit and it's been pursued across the world for a long time, is something that, at least to Americans, I think, is somewhat new. I mean, there was a big international conference in Barcelona, right? And is it the Hungarians or the Romanians or someone who've been studying dogs, like Hungary? Really? Even the canine science forum is pretty young. This will only be the the fourth time that that's run. So it's still pretty new. And canine science, I guess, is an emerging discipline. Um, but you're right, it's really diverse. We look at everything from the genetics of dogs and how they evolved through to the best way to raise dogs to be companions or participate in working worlds with us, whether that might be herding sheep or cattle or doing detection work at the airport or guiding someone with a visual impairment. Um, and we also look at, I guess, the best way to house and care for dogs, the best way to handle them in our training techniques, um, and also how we would, I guess manage their their retirement and um, as they age, things like yes. the cognitive processes and all those sort of things. So it's a really broad discipline. And we look at behavior, we look at learning, we look at physiology. So in my work, I look at hormones as indicators of stress levels. So it's quite common, I guess, for canine scientists to work together with specialists from different fields or to be a little bit of a jack-of-all-trades um, in having a bit of understanding across all those different disciplines. And I guess what's unusual is that there aren't too many fields in which people are collaborators. They're like, oh, no, this is my little niche, and I'm studying kenneled working dogs, and I'm going to keep all my my information to myself and have my moment of glory. But really, I think that the welfare of animals, of dogs, and how people relate to them matters so much to all of you who are researching it, and getting that information to trickle down to breeders to trainers to owners is so important because a lot of what we think we know is just something we learned when we were children or saw on television or read somewhere. And it's not usually uh, the whole story. And it isn't even put together all the pieces of the puzzle that you just mentioned. 
physically and emotionally how these dogs are. What are we offering them as a life? We don't really have the whole picture. We just go on our little emotional touch points. And you are looking at it from the dog point of view. What works for them? What well, makes them... That's a, really, that's a really important point. We do look at it from the dog point of view, but of course you can't really look at current companion and working dogs without also considering the human element. So part of my research has been looking at perceptions and attitudes that people have towards dogs and their welfare and what do people think dogs need to have good welfare and how does that match up with the, the current scientific knowledge we have about what dog, dogs need to lead a, lead a good life. Um, and that can help us identify areas where perhaps we need to do a better job of communicating our science to the general public or where perhaps we need to develop education materials to help in industries where perhaps they're not able to keep abreast of the science because it's holed up in academic journals that they don't have access to. That's a really good point. And most dog trainers, whether they have achieved some sort of celebrity status or they just have a lot of customers or clients in their own area, whether it's in the U.S., Australia, or anywhere – are often a ragtag bunch. They've self, they're mostly self-taught. Maybe they read a few books. Maybe they took a course, maybe somewhere. But the science that, and research that you're doing is something that should build a foundation of knowledge where it's not like someone goes to medical school and kind of guesses how to do surgery because they saw it once on TV or they read something in Vogue magazine. And that's sort of how dog training takes place a lot in this kind of anecdotal by the seat of your pants way and it seems to me that a lot of it a lot of the times we fail our dogs and we feel like failures because we don't really have the recipe that is scientific that really works because you guys have paid such close attention you say this is the way to get the the you know result you want and if you have a dog with this behavior here's some ways to understand it and then deal with it now when you talk about your your, your doctorate in the work performance, the welfare and enrichment of kenneled working dogs, uh, that word jumps out to me, kenneled. Yes, what, 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 what do you mean by that? Do you mean like uh, d- dogs that don't live in the home? They only live in a kennel right. situation? So when I started doing my PhD, I was actually employed as a training kennel and vet clinic manager at Guide Dogs Victoria, which is one of the largest guide dog organizations in Australia. So they provide um, working dogs to help people who are blind or visually impaired. Right. And one of the things that I noticed when I was in that role was that, you know, I thought we could do a better job of caring for the dogs in our kennels. Um, And the dogs are raised in volunteer puppy raiser homes for the first 12 months. And then they come into kennels to be assessed for suitability for training. And if their past is being suitable, they live in the kennels for the next five to six months while they're being trained. And then they get placed with their handler where they go to be for basically their working life. Um, and so we wanted to look at ways that we could, I guess, reduce the stress of the transition coming yes. from a, a normal family home yes. into a kennel environment and try and, I guess, investigate that link between any stress and their performance in assessment and training. Because if we can better understand that relationship, then we can better help dogs do well. Um, and, you know, across a lot of the working dog fields, the success rates aren't that high. You know, a success rate of 50% in a working dog program, meaning half the dogs you breed for the job end up in that job, is considered really good. That's right. And in some fields, it's lower than 10%. And it just seems like we can do better by dogs and have less wastage in these yes. industries yes. if we can better understand how to help them perform well. 
Well, this is this is the one of the topics that came up when Julie Hecht was talking briefly about you and your pen palship, because one of the things that has most jumped out at me, and and only recently, actually on the show with Julie, I had a gentleman who is a puppy dog raiser for Canine Companions for Independence. So um, it's either wheelchair bound, it's it's not visually impaired, but it's either wheelchair bound or perhaps veterans, that kind of thing, and they keep these puppies from six or seven weeks for 18 months. And I said to him, I understand that there's a washout rate and I don't want to hear everyone calling it, oh, you know, like re, what is it? A re job rate or something. 60% of the dogs. (laughs) Yeah, but really it's a washout. Someone has spent so much money on the breeding pairs and choosing dogs with great temperaments, physical strength and wellness, we hope not cancer, for example, in the line. And then these puppy rearers for 18 months or 12 months in the case of some of the guide dog organizations devote thousands of hours to these puppies training and socialization and experience in the world. And 60% of them can't even begin to do the job. And I've heard things like, well, I got my the dog back. I got to adopt for lifetime this dog because he was too reactive to pigeons or birds or something like yeah. well, it's a Labrador yeah. retriever. I think it would be a brain dead robot to not notice a pigeon. Why does that mean you can't do your job? So I want to know, yes, you're right. The stress for these dogs transitioning from a true family bond with their puppy rearer to limbo, whether it's in a kennel or even in someone else's home, but now it's a whole new set of people and a whole new set of rules. And then to a third one, which is to the person they're meant to help. For many dogs, that flexibility, uh, the emotional flexibility is difficult. But what about the failure to perform those tasks? That, to me, must at some point aren't alarm bells going off and isn't someone, whether it's Guide Dogs Victoria, Seeing Eye Dogs, Guide Dogs for the Blind, any of these organizations saying there's something broken with how we're doing this. Oh, look, and certainly that happens. And there's an international guide dog federation that has regular, um, I guess, conferences where people can share ideas and share things that are working well. And I think the interesting thing is that, you know, some dogs cope fine with those transitions that you mentioned. So for us to understand what is it about those dogs that helps them thrive in those situations versus the ones who aren't doing so well. So by studying their behavior and their physiology and looking at hormones like cortisol, um, and understanding the stress reactions that we're having, we can try and identify the dogs that are coping well and try and nut down what is it that helps them cope well and how can we help the ones that, you know, with what we're doing now, do we adjust what we're doing? Do we select the slightly different dogs in their behaviour profile? Um, how can we improve that success rate? And look, to be honest, you know, for guide dogs, if they're not successful, yes, there's a waste of resources, but at least they get to be rehoused as great pets. Well, you know, there are other industries... Right. There are other industries where the dogs that um, you know aren't successful have a much more grim fate. Right. Uh, but what are what are the 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 jobs for for dogs where only ten percent cut it? Are those military working dogs? Um, look, I don't know the figures for the military working dogs. I know that in greyhound racing, if you're considering racing dogs as dogs with a purpose, like a working dog, um, you know, we've got figures in Australia that show us that you know less than fifteen percent of the greyhounds bred live a full life. 
No, I wouldn't consider them a working dog, quite frankly. I don't know what the attitude is in Australia, but in the U.S., for the most part, animal welfare um, you know, organizations are trying and very successful at closing down most greyhound tracks. And if you looked at horse breeding, thoroughbred horse breeding, Australia, England, France, Saudi Arabia, America, I don't even suppose there's 10% of the well-bred horses who ever have a chance to run or even show the promise of it. So to me, that's yeah, there's a lot of similar on. themes. There's a lot of similar themes when we look at the different utility ways that we use animals. Yeah, definitely. So what about sled dogs, you know, dogs that are meant to pull in, in Alaskan and Yukon kind of that kind of are, are you considering them working dogs or those are more athletes? I, I would consider them working dogs. Unfortunately, in Australia, I don't get a lot of opportunity to <laughs> interact with sled dogs. We do have a very small population, um, but we only get snow for a couple of months a year in certain parts of Australia. So. Um, they're really more of a novelty factor. There is a right. race that's held annually, but it's more of a hobby activity rather than a um, like a permanent career, I guess you would consider it for some right. of the animals that you have here. So do you feel that the, the, that the problem in terms of going from this wonderful genetic background to having this wonderful early life with a puppy rearer and then what falls apart between there and placement with the person that you're going to be the 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 eyes or the ears or the paws for is it an do you think it's the emotional transition that's jarring or are some of those dogs simply unable to fulfill the actual task of turning on the light or making sure they don't bump into something with the blind person I think it's really something we need to consider at every level of the life cycle of the dog. So from the, you know, the genetic choices that we make in breeding puppies through to how we raise them through the early raising period, the very early months, through to how we train them as they mature and how we go about um, training the handlers is really important too. So again, when we're talking about dogs working in a task, we're not just talking about the dog, we're talking about the people that handle them and their education. Right. Um, and one of, the, one of the things we found in that benchmarking activity we did looking at the welfare of working dogs in Australia was that the people that were more likely to engage in aversive training techniques were the ones that had had no formalised education in dog training. And that was a really interesting finding because... People had less of a toolkit, I guess, of training yes. techniques. They were more likely to go for something that might be considered harsh or aversive. If they um, had no yeah, training also, at all. Also looking at how we manage the dogs so in terms of housing and husbandry and how we manage their retirement or when they finish working or their role, what we do with them then. Um, I think across all those different stages of the life cycle, there's room for improvement. And I'm, I'm really pleased to be part of a community of researchers all working together with a positive goal of trying to do the best thing for the dog. Well, what does happen with a guide dog who's retired? There was a, a big thing in the press in, in New York about a gentleman whose dog, it, it was murky, something about a railway, a subway car, and did the dog somehow jump onto the tracks with the man and save his life? But then it turned out the dog was 10 years old and about to be retired, and it was a man of, of no particular financial means. And he said, I've got to give up this dog. And it, it was confusing in the popular press whether this dog was suddenly going to wind up oh, in the dog. I'm not, not, not familiar with that, that instance, but I know that in Australia we certainly, most or all the guide dog organisations will take dogs back and we own them. We have a waiting list for people wanting to get I'll a guide on a guide dog. And so with the, the school takes that on as a responsibility to the dog and to the handler. So they always have that option, but I would say 90% of the time dogs retire either within the same home or they go to a family member or friend of the, 
person. And that's what I had always been led to believe too. So what is it about their retirement that you have to study that's a problem? In other words, if they've well, mostly- I guess, yeah. So it's possibly not so relevant in the guide dog field, but when you look at things like farm dogs that work in oh, herding right. cattle and sheep, or again, looking at the greyhounds or military working dogs that may not be suitable for rehoming. Right. Um, talking about, uh, I guess, how we manage their retirement and endpoints. Um, so up until recently, the routine endpoint for our Air Force dogs was euthanasia, so they would be killed when they were no longer suitable to their wow. um, duty. And now they've wow. changed that requirement, um, and so now they get assessed to see if they are eligible to be rehomed either with their handler or a suitable um, placement. That's so that was a big change in our, our rules of things to do. Absolutely, and it's you know that's quite shocking for some people. Well, and that's yes. one of the things about dogs. They're all they're all around us, and yet we so often don't stop to think about these dogs in service roles and what happens to them. Well, I think for, devastating for the handlers. The, the guest after Absolutely. you is, is a wonderful yeah, novelist who's written a number of books about a military novels, thrillers with a military working dog. And I know from military working dog handlers who've come on the show and everyone's heard them talk. These are their true best friend, right hand man, if you will. They are partners in every sense of the word. And having to give that partner dog up to another military person, if that's the cycle, because they don't stay with the military person, at least in America, they they continue on in their dog military career until they can no longer perform. But I was led to believe that the last handler to have a dog gets sort of first dibs, but sometimes the dog has been with somebody longer and is more attached. And there's a waiting list for those dogs because the, the yeah. men and women who've been partnered with them, you know, are devastated to have to give them up to continue working. Well, you touch on a really important point there, and that is that, you know, some dogs that are in working roles are really important companions and partners to people. But I think it's also worth mentioning that for some people, they're more like a tool. You know, they're something they use to get the job done, and they don't necessarily have that emotional connection to the animal the way that we might like to think everybody does, the way that we have with our own animals. Um, you know, for some people, you know, some farmers, their dog is just the same as their motorbike or their shovel. It's a tool that they use to get the job done and they don't have an emotional connection. I think I think that that's true for dogs that herd cattle and sheep, that, that, that a farmer needs to have a detachment because so many of the animals under his care have a short life and they have a quick death at some point as part of being farmers. So there's probably... Yeah, I guess I've, I've certainly encountered that range of attachments across all the different fields of working dogs, so including guide dogs. And I've seen farmers who love their dogs to bits and pieces. <laughs> yes, of so course. It, it isn't yeah, to say that yeah. they don't love them. But yes, like they are a, a shovel or a or cart because it's part of them getting their job done. Well, I think, yeah, to understand, I, I think what's great about your work is that you see the big overview that all working dogs are not the same, but... And not and all people that work with dogs or need dogs to work with them aren't the same either. But that the the basic dog as an animal has needs and meeting them well will enhance the way they can share our lives. And we want to make sure there's a lot of there's a lot of consistency in their basic needs across all the different fields and ways that we use dogs. 
Well, it's wonderful that you're doing the work, Mia. I'm so interested to 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 start reading Do You Believe in Dog? And anybody that wants to see um, the musings of yourself and Julie and other wonderful canine researchers, it's such a gift to have this blog that we can poke in and poke our nose in and have a look-see because I think it gives us a great insight into the level of dedication you have to doing the science that in the end of the day probably comes out of a very deep love and passion for dogs yourselves. In in finishing up, what dog or dogs do you have at home? Ah, that's a really good question. Unfortunately, at the moment, I'm living with two cats, a preschooler and my husband. Oh, um, that's so two, funny. We had two elderly dogs who have passed away in the last six months, and we're not quite ready to um, to open up our arms again just yet. We're still getting over their loss. Oh, well, you know what? It takes the time that it takes, and the kitties do a good job of filling the hole, and a toddler keeps you so busy that yeah. it's wonderful <laughs> to not have to worry about having the, the, the food on the floor and the toddler in the dog food rather than the toddler food. Well, to be food. honest, I've had to do a lot more cleaning since my dogs have died. <laughs> That's so funny. That's right, because they used to pick up all the dropped toddler stuff. Well, it's, <laughs> it's great that you've come to America to, to share with your fellow scientists and to share your wisdom. And we look forward to another chance to talk to you on Dog Talk. When you've got your doctorate, then we're going to, I can't wait to hear what the result of it is. I mean, what is going to be the punchline, right. so to speak? It'll be great Fantastic. to do Thank that. Thank you. Thank I look, you, Mia. I look forward to speaking with you again. Absolutely. Enjoy your time. Give the, give, give the best of everyone on Dog Talk to Julie Hecht as well, because she's a wonderful collaborator for you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for your time. Take care. Bye-bye. After this quick break, we'll be back with James Rollins and his fantastic new thriller, The Kill Switch. We'll be right back. Support for Dog Talk comes from Precious Cat Litter, which is privately owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who is dedicated to creating litters to appeal to pussycats and protect their health. All the Precious Cat Litters are low dust for the health of all members of the household. Touch of the Outdoors is their newest litter made from field grass that provides environmental enrichment for indoor cats and entices them into the litter box with the natural scent of the great outdoors. Support for this show also comes from Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils. Nordic Naturals uses responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and uses third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness in all their oils. I am back with James Rollins and his fabulous, fabulous new book, The Kill Switch, a Tucker Wayne novel. You remember we talked to him last year. Um, He had this really great working dog and a lot of the books seen from the point of view of the dog, which was pretty cool. This new book is also written by Grant Blackwood. Jim, welcome back to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I'm very psyched to have you here. Thanks again. I appreciate it. Well, New York Times bestseller, how many times? It must be getting a little tiresome to be so successful. And the Library Journal gives you starred reviews. And Publishers, Publishers Weekly gives you starred reviews. And these are things that do not come easily. We loved the book Bloodline. It was quite extraordinary to see through the eyes of the dog and the equipment that he wore that let the man see what the dog was seeing, you, you had a wonderful way of getting into the dog's experience, not just point of view, but his experience of working alongside his man. You've written so many books, and there's only so many days or in the week or hours in the day. 
Why or how, if you don't mind me asking, did you bring in another very successful thriller writer to be your co-author? Was it in terms of wanting to get more of these wonderful books out to us or did was there some information or experience that Grant Blackwood had that you wanted to bring to the party? Well, I knew I always wanted to return to, to Tucker and Kane, this, this uh, army ranger and his dog. Uh, after they appeared in Bloodline and my short story tracker, I got a lot of emails from people saying, you know, when are we going to see these, that pair of characters again? I'd love yes. To see them. Um, but the question, you know, I, I, I was pretty busy. Uh, it was hard to figure out, first of all, how I was going to fit an entire novel into, uh, into, another, into the already pretty tight schedule. And so I've known Grant for a long time, and we were uh, at Thriller Fest uh, a couple of years ago, and I was, was complaining to him about my, my, how I would love to be able to expand with these characters and have them featured in a solo novel. And he was like, well, gosh, you know, if, if you want, I'd love to, I'd love those characters too. I'd love to, to work on you with a, a novel with that. And I thought, well, that, that solves, you know, hits two birds with one stone, so to speak. And that not only would that help me with regards to maybe just having a half a book and maybe I can squeeze that into my busy schedule, but also one of my other concerns about reintroducing Tucker and Kane as, as solo characters through the length of a 500 page novel was that I don't, I have a veterinary background, so I do have a vet background, just not right. a veteran's background. Whereas Grant comes out of out of the Navy background, he was a, and he was sort of an action hero. He was that's a, right. He was a Navy diver himself, a rescue diver. So you know he could bring to the table things I can't when it comes right. to writing a 500-page novel based upon that one character. He could bring you know his military knowledge of hardware, but mostly the, the mindset of how a military figure might uh, act and and calculate and function within the the course of a novel. So it was great to be able to lean on his expertise to bring more, you know, that, that level of verisimilitude, that, that reality behind that character even more intensely. Uh, so, you know, being, bringing that to the table, bringing the fact that he can carry half the burden of the novel on his shoulders, I thought, well, this is great. This, you know, this does everything I need to make these, these characters really shine. Well, I, I think it's in a fantastic collaboration. It, it says with the notes that come with the book that he also collaborated with Clive Cussler and Tom Clancy, two other pretty illustrious, you know, fast-paced authors. And I, and I think there's sections of this book, and I thought, how could, could Jim have invented the idea of this submarine? There's very cool stuff that happens in snow, and they're on the, the, the lookout for this body of water and this foliage and it's all a great thriller but the stuff with the submarines was so unique and i thought could this really happen is there such a thing did you guys invent it or does it really exist oh no that the volga the volga submarine tour is that what yeah. you're talking about yeah no I, I i've been on that tour no way it, they, they truly do exist and there's competing there's actually multiple companies that actually how these, funny uh, these submarine tours of the volga river well, it, it, you obviously have brought everything to bear that, that you could think of uh, to bring it in here. How many military working dogs have you actually met? Did you meet one and get inspired to write the, this series of books originally? Or after wanting to write it, did you then go out and try to meet the dogs? Or is it completely your imagination? Oh, no. I, I had done a USO tour to Iraq and Kuwait back in the uh, winter of 2012. It was a group of six authors. We went out to, to Kuwait and Iraq at various bases, and uh, we were sort of a test balloon for the USO to see whether the, 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 the officers, I mean, the uh, men and women out there in the field would be interested in, in having authors. I'll were, be darned. We were, received, we were received very warmly. Uh, usually they have rock stars and comedians. Yes, and, or, or in the old days they used to have can-can girls or Hollywood yeah, stars and, showing and their they, ankles they or their have, kneecaps. They, 
they sell cheerleaders that come through. Yes. You know, we weren't quite sure, like, yeah, but wait, Jim, there's a cheerleader behind you. We weren't quite <laughs> sure how we were going to be received, but we were actually very warmly received. We're hearing nice. comments like, gosh, somebody we want actually to talk to is finally here. Uh, so that was sort of nice. But again, me being a veterinarian, I'm seeing working dogs in the fields out there. Right. And so I went to talk to a few of the gentlemen just because I was curious. I wasn't planning on doing a book about them. I was just, you know, I'm just naturally curious being a veterinarian sure. about this relationship and, and found out how deeply that bond is between the handler and their dog. And, and the more I investigated, the more intrigued I was. Uh, you know, one guy said, I think my dog understands me better than my own wife does. And this, this deep bond was really intriguing to me. And, and then when I was in Baghdad, I get a tap on my, tap on my shoulder. I turn around, and there's a uh, former classmate of mine from the University of Missouri Columbia Veterinary School. No. I always knew he was, uh, he was uh, in the military even back then, so it was, you know, but he surprised me, ambushed me literally. And so I was shocked to see him there. And he, again, great resource for me to, to, to ask him questions about military war dogs, and, and he, he treats them and, and got me an invitation to the Lackland Air Force Base to be able to see. Oh, these, lucky these, thing. Exactly. So I saw from, from you know, puppyhood to graduation what that was like, both for raising the handlers and raising the dogs, because they are sort of raised in tandem. Yes. Um, and uh, so I knew I just wanted to create that character. So I, you know, I, I wrote them as a, as, a, as a short story initially to see if I can get that voice of the of the dog and and the handler as well as I could, and then recruited them into Sigma in my Bloodline novel. But I always thought they'd be a great to, as a solo pair of characters in their own supporting in their own supporting an entire series. But again, it didn't seem like I had the the time or necessarily the military knowledge to maybe pull that off well. Right, and it's and it's so authentic and so you know sincere that well you you did at least go into the war zone, which thank you for doing that, and that must have been scary in in and of itself. And nice that the military. Um, personnel were happy to meet you and talk to an author who has really celebrated a lot of people in the military and what the military sets out to do. But th- things like the commands with the dog, and if someone is, is tuned in late, I'm talking to Jim Rollins, who's the co-author with Grant Blackwood of The Kill Switch, which is a continuation of his his wonderful book with with the small Belgian shepherd, Kane, who wears all kinds of exotic equipment and a really good protective vest, there was a very many series of commands that he gives to Kane, and they're quite different from one another. And when the per- when as a reader, you're like, "What's going to happen next?" So you're kind of reading sort of fast past those commands. But if we stop, we realize that there's very different variations on the theme, how far the dog should go, whether he should come back to the man and give him some info. How did, did you invent any of those commands or variations of commands or were those ones that you were told this is absolutely the way we send search and not search and destroy, but search and look, search and come back, search and sound off or stay stock still or get on your belly, those kind of things. About ninety percent of the commands are, are directly out of out of, of verbatim from the way they, they train these dogs. A few of them I had to just sort of improvise a little bit to make it work with the story. But what surprised me is that you know a lot of people. Some of the feedback I got when they appeared in in Bloodline initially was, you know, gosh, you know, it seems far fetched that this dog could do that. Um, this seems, you know, unbelievable that this dog could be this talented. You know, and I, I vetted my novel, both Bloodline and this book, with some of the handlers just to make sure I was getting my details correct. Right. And, you know, they, they helped me fine-tune some things. Nice. But what they said, if anything, I'm probably pulling the reins back. Really? On what these dogs could really do. What shocked me, again, and I, I come from a veterinary background, and so I know a fair amount about animal behavior and sure. dog training. 
But one of the things that was shocking that I learned is, is the dog's ability to, to chain commands, which means yes. that the handler can give them a series yes. of commands, and they will follow them, you know, A to B to C. They, you know, they, will, they will listen. They will go, okay, I got to do this command, then I got to do that command, then I got to do this command. And they can string a long chain of commands together to get some, some pretty incredible um, actions out of these That's dogs. That's right. Give an example from the book, like like three words that he will say to Cain in a row. And the and you're right, chaining commands, putting three different ideas, three different actions that are asked of him together is sounds like very higher math, a much higher intelligence. So give an example of what that would sound like. Well, it could be like the th- three things that are, are three commands that are common is, is, is search. Yes. And, and there's variations of search depending upon what you're asking the search for. And there's sound off, which is, which is you know, to, to, to bark if they hear that, and then return. So that's very common where they will go to search. They will sound off where a bomb might be or where they believe a, uh, a hidden uh, assailant might be. Yes. And then they return. Or they can, be, they can add attack. They can, add, they can actually have the dog then pursue that if it's an assailant they're after. But what's and incredible is it's, it's all told to the dog from the get-go. It's right. not like search and then the dog turns around and goes, okay, now what do you want me to do? It's like the dog already has this chain of things that he has on his to-do list and he's ticking them exactly. off. Right? He has on to-do list, right? He's checkmarking them off. He's yeah. Going along. So there's one point where he has to go down this really deep well into a cave right. and the dog is really psyched to do it. And this is something that from having had some wonderful military working dog trainers and so forth on the show and some research of my own and, and in reading your books as well, I know truly these dogs are psyched to do this. You can never ask a dog to jump out of a helicopter with a man unless they really want to be doing it. You know, I mean, that's something that sort of goes without saying. But getting down into a deep well, I, I couldn't quite I, – I was trying to envision. So the dog is wearing his Kevlar vest, and he's got the, the camera mounted on the back so that and a light so that what he sees can be relayed back up to the humans at the mouth of this kind of deep tunnel-y well. But the dog wasn't – I thought you were going to maybe repel him down with a rope or the character was, how does the dog go down an eight-foot drop? I mean, you, you describe him as landing with a soft thunk, but he's not a cat. So how do they do that? Do they, like, grip on the walls as they're going down? Yeah, I mean, at this point, they were, I could have lowered them because they actually have a, a repelling type of uh, right. harness built into their into the vest. So it could easily have been, been, been lowered down just as well. Uh, and so, yeah, eight foot is probably a little bit of a, of a, of a stretch for a dog to, to, to land but they can but but everything in the book is realistic. It is just as sure. things are actually happen in the field. Oh yeah, I mean they they've got they've got I've seen dogs in 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 the in Lackland where they're they're jumping off roofs. Wow. To land, to land and run. So I mean they can they can drop quite a distance safely. And so you think do you think a lot of that comes from the breeding of these Belgian Malinois that they are bred with such physical agility and spring and uh, let's say the relationship of one bone to another, that they have these extraordinary physical capacities. They're the equivalent of a great football player, you know, who's like one human out of a million who can do these incredible actions. Right. Because it's, there's several key things that why the Belgian Malinois has become such the, the popular uh, military war dog and why initially we were actually importing them from Europe and now Blackland has their own breeding program for the breed. I'm glad so to hear that because I never could understand why we couldn't crack that code. Yes, exactly. do go on. 
$30,000 to someone in Czechoslovakia for a 12-month-old dog. He's like, really? We can't figure out how to take a mom and a dad and make some nice American babies? But there's two, two main reasons why. And number one is that the Belgian Malinois has an extremely strong uh, desire to please. Uh, they, they are their dogs that, that really want to, 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 to please their, 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 their owner or their, or their, or their, their, their handler. But also, it's, it's physically they are a more compact version of the, the, you know, the old military war dogs with the shepherds. And That's the, right. And your uh, Dobermans. Yep. But uh, you know, this is a more compact breed, so they're they're a little hardier. They're they they're, they can a soldier can pick them up and run with them. Um, so they're but they're just as as, as fast and, and muscular. So they they're like little bullets when they really want to get going. So that even though they don't have maybe the, the size of a Doberman or a, a full-grown shepherd, uh, they make up for it in just this, this compact, bulky speed and, and, and energy. And it's because of that, that, that confirmation of the dog, along with the temperament, is why this breed has become so, such a, a, a go-to breed for the military. For military work, and really an extremely poor example of a home pet dog. I can just tell you, having met a few that were bred more towards working with police or something, this dog needs a job, and the job needs to be really intense and nothing you can provide them at home, and it's probably going to backfire. So don't be yeah, reading this a, book. They have, nickname, they have a nickname for the, the, the Malinois, which is uh, Maligators. Yes. Uh, for that very reason, they're, they're, yes. they're awful chewers because they have so much energy that needs to be released, and it's not kept uh, mentally stimulated because they're very smart dogs. Yes. So they can, you know, boredom can lead to a lot of... Uh, of you know, behavioral issues. We, we don't so want someone know. to read your book and go, God, I'd love to have a dog that versatile or so hardworking. You, you really wouldn't. You really would be very glad that the military has him. There's, there's a scene in the jungle where they are, the group of humans with Kane, the dog, is um, aware of some lions in the jungle. And I was wondering how you got your research to know how would the male lions behave, how would the female lions behave, and how could a very small dog um, know how to handle that? They're, the Rhodesian Ridgeback, as I understand it, was a breed originally used as a hunting dog in South Africa and used with lions. It's a big, strong, very aloof, powerful dog, and apparently – I once was told the only dog, the only breed of dog that will stand up to a lion or knows how to fight a lion. But Kane knew how. How did you, did you invent some of it or how did you learn? That was probably probably a stretch that Kane would be able to know how to necessarily react to the lion. Um, But it was cool. I believed it. Again, I knew about the Ridgebacks and I knew about, uh, you know, the the, the key usually when it comes to lions is, is, not to not to run. Yes. They have yes. A predator prey relationship. So the key is to put up as big of a bluff as you can. Yes. And you know if the if they're not feeling if they're you know, fairly satiated and not feeling that you know aggressive, you, you might be able to intimidate them enough to drive them off. So I'm obviously going to give you know Kane the benefit of the doubt that he. I thought that, that was I thought that was great because that scene what you you set that up so marvelously. The 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 guide tracker says, okay, I'm going to give you this rifle and you got to do this at this exact moment and hit the lion either in this spot or that spot. And if that doesn't work, you duck because I'm going to be following you up behind. And if that doesn't work, and then the woman says, well, don't I get to have a gun? And it was like, wow, people are going to be lined up like dominoes, and they're going to fall, and, and, the, and the lions are going to win that one. It, it's pretty cool uh, to, to see the dogs take on things because you don't in any way make it cute. 
it's so it's so genuine and so not anthropomorphized. The dog is smelling and sensing and picking up everything in the environment and yet being selective in what he in what he is doing on his mission, on his chain of commands. And I think that's really one of the most remarkable things about working dogs, and you capture it, which is they have input from a million different sensors. All their, So many of their sensors are so highly tuned. And yet they can have show the self-control and the impulse control to only follow the ones that please the man. And, and I think that's one of the things that really comes across in your writing is the respect for that dog's super intelligence and super sensory ability. And yet the choices that he's making on behalf of the humans, it, it's, it's sort of noble, if you will. Yeah, I definitely wanted not to do a Disney version. Yes. Of the dog, when I'm in the dog's point of view, I didn't want the dog breaking into song or something. <laughs> in the I, I, wanted, I wanted, as much as I can, take the readers and put them in the paws of that dog. Yes. And really see what it's like to experience the world through the eyes of, of a dog. And I take him, again, my background is in, from animal behavior and psychology from veterinary side, what I learned from being over at Lackland Air Force Base and how these dogs react. Uh, I wanted to sort of take them. You know, how would a how would is the dog going to react in in a in a in a stressful situation? Do, do they suffer PTSD? What does that look like? Right. Um, those are all things I want to explore when it comes to dealing with King. And riding on the train earlier on in the book is something that, I mean, do you think that's something that military dogs are trained to do as part of their training, or there aren't that many opportunities to do that? And so when they're in the field and they might be being transported by train and then maybe having to leap off the train as they do, is that something that they that you've seen them or you've heard about them actually preparing oh, yeah. the dog for? Definitely. I mean, they, they do? Are, not necessarily from trains, but from moving vehicles, yes. Wow. Because most of them, they are transported. Sometimes it does mean immediate evacuation is necessary to pursue something or some threat. Right. They, they need or to, to av- yeah. Or to so that avoid is part of their training is, is to, to, to exit a, a moving vehicle. That's sort of amazing since most of us don't even want to let the window of our back seat down more than three inches for fear our dog will put their head out too far. I'm always admonishing people. And meanwhile, these dogs are taught to go flying out. I mean, moving vehicle and God knows what they find when they land. In this case, gigantic glacier kind of snow drifts. The book is just so amazing because even though there's this wow factor of could this really be, there's this deep, profound sense, yeah, this is really how it is for this very elite man and dog and those very elite military working dogs and men and women who do this. And I think you've brought it to life and and found a wonderful collaborator in Grant Blackwood. He obviously brings his experience as a U.S. Navy veteran and an operations specialist and a rescue guy in the water. I just can't wait for the next one. It's wonderful. I hope Kane just lives forever. He's an immortal dog because you have really created an immortal character in him. I love him. Dr. Wayne. Really, really wonderful job. Thank you so much, Jim. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Take care. Love talking to you. Have a great rest of a weekend, everybody. Hope you enjoy this book and the Shelter Me show and um, reading on the, uh, the wonderful dog blog that Mia and Julie have. Have a wonderful rest of a weekend. Hug your kitties, kiss your pooches, and we will talk again next week. Bye for now.